The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. This month, we interview hip-hop producer, promoter, and record dealer Gary of G's Records. From roller rink hip-hop shows, to house parties, to 1212 Studios with Paul C., to Jazzy J at Strong City, to producing tracks with Beat Nuts, Africa Mambata, recording with Grandmaster Flash, and selling sought-after breakbeat records to Q-Tip, Large Professor, and Questlove, Gary is an innovator and a conduit. Here's the interview. Gary, what's, what's your first musical memory? Oh, wow. Well, let me take you back to, I had a cousin that um, used to babysit me. And he had a nice little system. Um, and I guess that's my first memory of having music, of listening to him. They were, they were like 10, 11 years older than me. And um, just listening to their collection when I wasn't really into music, but I was listening to them and he go out and buy a little setup and his turntables and everything, everything just looks good, looked good to me. You know what I mean? So that was my first introduction. I was probably about eight, seven, eight, you know, and this is 60s, 70s? When... Oh, wow. Oh, you know, yeah, you could just... <laughs> yeah, I know. You put me out there, man. Yeah, it was in the 70s. It was yeah. in the 70s, uh, late 70s. Late 70s. I'm not that old. I'm, I'm up there, but I'm not that old. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first introduction. And then he was just, me and him would walk down and just start buying records. You know, and at that same time, hip-hop was just forming with one of the first records um fatback band and curtis blow and they were out so that's what he was buying and i started listening to that so really hip-hop was kind of like the first music i listened to even though my mother was playing stuff i heard in the car to me that was boring music you know when we're riding with moms she listening to boring music this hip-hop stuff it, it caught me you know and that's why i guess i've been listening to it for the last 40 something years so mom wasn't listening to James Brown then? Nah, nah. She said she was later, but I never heard it. I never heard it. So um, most of the stuff I heard was from my cousin's collections, you know, that he had. And you grew up in Connecticut? I grew up in Connecticut. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And um, Bridgeport, Stratford area, you know. Most of the times at grandma's house, she was in Bridgeport. Mom, we lived in Stratford. 
So what would have been the first kind of hip hop events that you went to or stumbled upon? Um, actually, it was so crazy. We lived right around the corner from the Stratford Roller Rink. And they brought hip hop there. Those were with the Cold Crush Brothers, Grandmaster Flash, the Crash Crew, and our local guys um, at the time. They became the Skinny Boys. They became White Flash. But at the time, they were one group. And they performed there. And I was probably around 12, 11, 12, when I started going over there. You know, couldn't stay out too late, but we were going there. That must have shook your world. <laughs> nah, actually, I ain't going to lie to you. Actually, no, we went over there, um, me and my bad groups of friends, we were going over there just to mess with little girls. <laughs> you know, that was us getting out the house for the first time. You know, we 11, 12, you know, we were not teenagers. We were getting out the house and because it was so close. We could stay till maybe nine or ten. You know what I mean? So that was my first experience. I wasn't really, you know, I honestly, I didn't get into the hip hop side of it, even though I knew the groups and stuff. I didn't get into the hip hop side of it to um, one of my friends. Um, Roger Elder was his name. He showed me the setup at his house. And I just happened to, I guess, probably junior high. I happened to see the setup. I said, hey, what are you doing over there? He was showing me the DJ setup, you know, and we would go over there and practice at his house after school and bother his little brother, which is one of my best friends now. And his father used to always come in there and be like, hey, you guys turn that mess down. What are you guys doing? And that was my introduction at the age of 14 where I said, you know what? I think I want to start DJing. And I wanted to really, you know, um, take it serious. I, for the for the hip hop side of it, but what did, so what did DJ mean back then? It's not just I mean is it is it that you play for crowds, but you also back up a hip hop artist or come up with beats? What what well, the whole thing is? I don't want to cut you off. I'm sorry no, about that. Ahead. But there's there's different forms of DJing. You know, um, back then you had the battle DJ. They called them now. They call them turntablists. But battle DJ is where you would learn all the techniques of scratching, um, blending, quick mixing, you know, and those type of guys, hip hop DJs, they were collecting beats, they were collecting breaks, but that was that was prior before us. You know, that started with Hurt, uh, Bambada and all those guys in the seventies, the early seventies. And we just caught that bug from them. There are DJs that do weddings, parties and things like that. I don't consider them hip hop DJs. They're DJs, but I don't consider them hip hop DJs because they're not into collecting. They're not into the blending or maybe the blending, but they're not into scratching or quick mixing. They play for the crowd. And then there's club DJs that sometimes their vocal talk is more better than their DJing skills. You know what I mean? So they can talk you into, uh, oh, this is a good time with the say ho and getting into all that but their DJing skills might be lesser than a hip-hop DJ. So when uh, when do you start digging? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> My story is a little bit different from a lot of guys' stories from Connecticut, or maybe it's not. I started digging, like I said, first of all, we all raided our mother's collections, our father's collections, our aunt's and aunt uncle's collections and I started with my aunt and uncle's collection because <laughs> they did my aunt used to have parties in her house 
And like I said, my cousins was there and I started going through their collection and started listening to all the old, like you said, James Brown, the Al Green, the, you know, uh, P-Funk, Sly Stone. And then I said, hey, when I got with my friend Raj, we said, um, he, he showed me the essence of the breakdown of a record, the drum piece, the piece that Flash and them guys were starting to cut up. And he told me about the Bob James and other things to look for, which my aunt and them didn't collect those type of music. So I started going to different little stores and looking for that. And we would go out, how we used to do it back then, called beat digging. You know, now they say digging in the crates, but we used to call it beat digging back then. And that's what got me starting to build my collection. But at the same time, in my area, I started seeing, you know, going to thrift stores or people were throwing their records away. This was like late, mid-80s, going into the late 80s where people, with CDs were starting to come around and people weren't too much into the, the vinyl anymore, you know? So it was great for you then. It was. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. And then at that time, um, through Roger, he introduced me to a couple of guys and said they needed a DJ. And um, they were MCs. And he said, well, you know, you guys could practice over here once in a while. Or you could practice at um, one of my friend's house. And that's what we did for a while until I started buying my own equipment. Because at that time, I, I was working pretty decent job <laughs> and saved my money and I started buying my own equipment and we used to practice in my basement and um, go over little routines and then we said hey you know like everybody else let's go out and perform here let's go out and perform there we, we used to throw our own parties because at the time we weren't able to get in the clubs we were underage and we used to have our own little house party here at somebody's house a house party over at another person's house and we would switch it up and one of my um French mother, she was good. She used to let us have our parties as long as we weren't drinking. You could have your party over here as many people as you want to. But she didn't know that we knew a lot of people. <laughs> so some of them parties turned into maybe 200 people being in a house party, which, you know, they can't fit in a house party. So some people are outside in the back, some people are in the front. And we got yelled at a lot of times for that. <laughs> but that's how we started. And we learned how to be entrepreneurs actually through that method because we started throwing our own parties. And um, from there, we said, hey, you know, let's try to make a, a, a record. Let's try to do that. And then from there, we started going to studios and paying for studio times here and there. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump around. I'm going to let you ask your question. I'm going to let you ask your question. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, uh, like, so to promote these parties, was it like flyers or word of mouth? What did you do? Um, yeah, we did flyers. At, oh, some of the parties were word of mouth because we used to, I used to have a crew of maybe 15 guys. You know, <laughs> my friend always jokes about it now. We were like the Connecticut Wu-Tang before them. You know, there was like 15 guys in this group. So if everybody invited 10 people, we would have, a you know, 100 people or 150 people there. And that's enough for us at that time. We weren't trying to get 1,000 people there. So sometimes we did a few flyers and sometimes it was just word of mouth depends on what we were trying to do for the night um who who were the artists oh man i wish i, I should have brought something up one of our biggest parties we threw at that time was in 1990 
It was at the Ramada end in Stratford. And that night was so crazy because the day before, it was, in, it was January, I think, 12th. I think it was even my, my birthday party for myself. The day before, the temperature was like 70 degrees, and we were so happy. Like, oh, my God, this is going to be a great party. The day of the party, it was a blizzard. That night, we were going to have, nobody knew about him, Fat Joe was coming through, uh, Lord Finesse, Diamond D, and actually about maybe a month or so ago, Diamond D posted that flyer because I don't have it anymore. I wasn't the guy to save flyers. Um, a lot of stuff I had, I used to store in my basement, and unfortunately, basement got flooded a few times. I lost the record collection. I lost a lot of memorabilia that I used to have down there. But that was one of our biggest flyers where we had other artists come on. Most of the times when we did a party, it would just be us. We wouldn't, we wouldn't promote no other artists. <laughs> you know, just like, this is our thing, you know? So. How would you find studios back then? Nah, I mean, studios was calling phone book. Gotcha. Things like that. Yeah. Phone book. and But see, there's, there's so many layers to to my stories. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the DJ side. And when I was looking for studios, I was more or less, and that's going to go to another story of we used to have, um, we were dealing with a um, studio out of here, out of, of, I think it was in Fairfield, called Unicorn. Unicorn uh, Studios, where the guy wasn't really vibing to what we were doing, because you got to understand the still. Well, that's what I meant, is yeah. like trying to find a studio that would actually do hip-hop and knew what you guys were trying to get and do. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's yeah. what it was. Okay, so that there you go. Okay. So to get, and that goes to my story, To that is we would go to the studios in Connecticut, and they weren't really, they would mess with drum machines and things like that, and we... We kind of said, you know, that sound is kind of old, even though they were like, no, no, that's what's happening. We knew we were listening to the street sound. It's like, no, Karis One record don't sound like that. <laughs> you know, what you're doing sounds like more of what Run DMC were doing. And we were dealing with uh, another studio with um, Ronnie Lee. I forgot the name of his studio, but he was an awesome guy. But that's the sound he was trying to give us, that Run DMC sound. And we were like, nah, we don't really want that. So we started looking... One of my friends, excuse me, one of my friends started going to a school in New York. And from there, he linked up with somebody. And hold on, sorry, excuse me. Let me change that around. Let me change that around how it actually went. One of my friends went to school in New York. My other friend went to um, Southern and, and New Haven. And there, at that time, Parrish from EPMD was going to Southern. And they linked up together. But there was also another gentleman. What was he going to Southern for? I actually don't know. I just know he was That's going. That's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Parish, Parish was. Well, it all tied in together. It's a funny story because it all tied in together. Because actually, it linked into what Steezo, everybody met during that time. I didn't really know Steezo at that time. But my other friend knew of him. And he knew of Parish. And... Um, there was a other, another gentleman that was there from New York, went to Yale. His name was Oscar. Oscar's uncle was DNA from the uh, legendary label and um, DJ group 
was uh, Hank Love and DNA. They were out in New York. Through that connection, Oscar was trying to get a deal, and he did have a deal on DNA Records. But he also linked us into the studio that he was working at, which was 1212. And if you don't know about 1212 Studios, you need to start researching them because they had one of the most talented engineers, co-producers by the name of Paul C. And Paul C was the first time we actually went to a studio and they got what we were, they got our idea of what we were trying to do to make a record. And at that time I was the DJ. I wasn't thinking about producing and none of that stuff. I was, I went into that studio as a DJ, but I had my ideas on how I wanted this stuff to sound, how the record or the demo, we didn't, not the record, how the demo should sound. And Paul C., I told him, he showed me a few things, and he got my he got my vision. And it was so good. He said, well, you know what you just did? I said, no. He said, well, you kind of produced the track. I said, well, I did? He said, yeah, because you gave me all the elements I needed. You know, I went in there with my samples. I went in there with, okay, put the horns here, and I was arranging it as we were doing it. And to me, I guess that was my first time doing production or co-production. And... um we used to have a blast. That was 1212 in Queens, New York. We had a blast going there. We went there about three or four times. During that time, unfortunately, um, Paul C. was murdered. And um, before we got to finish our third song, we did two songs with him. Before we got to finish our third song, he was murdered. And um, we stopped going. We, unfortunately, we stopped going to that studio. And from there, we were still pushing, still trying to make it. Um, one of my friends said, you know, we need a manager, <laughs> like everything else. Let's get a manager. So we, we couldn't find the one in Connecticut. Let's get a manager in New York. So we did find a manager in New York. I'm not going to say his name, <laughs> but of course he wasn't the right kind of manager we needed. And this you guy, guys have a name at this point or are you guys just trying to get, yeah, uh, at this point we were, we were called the Rhino committee. That was our names at that time. Charging forward. That's what that was the slogan. <laughs> Charging forward. Um, so the manager at the time said, hey, I know a great studio that you guys can go to and record out of. And we said, okay. But at the time, he didn't tell the studio that we were coming up there. We <laughs> Listen, it was a wild ride. I got so many stories. I, 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 it's too long. But just to get to the studio on time, we had to go to New York. Just to get to the studio on time, we're driving down the sidewalks of New York City because there was traffic. And he didn't tell the guys we were coming, but I guess he knew somebody at the front desk or something, something crazy. We had to be there at a certain time where the guy was going to be there. So we're driving down the sidewalks of, of, of the Bronx, beeping horns, telling people, get out of the way, get out of the way, we're coming. Finally, we get up to the studio, and we're walking through the door, and I'm like, okay, this is this is a nice studio. All of a sudden, my friend said, hey, this is Jazzy J. And if you don't know who Jazzy J is, Jazzy J is producer, DJ for Africa Bamba and Zulu Nation, but he also had records out, Planet Rock, Jazzy Sensation, and he also was in the movie Beat Street, which... We all saw that movie. So when we saw him, like, oh, we know who he is. He didn't know who we were. Anyways, we played him our demo because you had to play 
your music. They weren't just taking anybody into the studio. So we played them the music. And at that time, I didn't know at that time, but I found out later, um, there was Melly Mel from Furious Five was in the studio too. And another friend of mine who became a friend of mine, Mr. Freeze from the Jazzy Five Sensation was in the studio. And they were just having a little meeting. We just busted into their meeting, <laughs> played the, the the demo. And he was like, yeah, that's cool, it's cool, it's cool. And he told my manager, yeah, I'll give you a call. And everybody left the studio, but I hung back. I'm like, wait a minute. We did all that for that little quick meeting like that? So they're all looking at me like, yeah, you know, you can leave. I mean, I'm not as big as I am now. You can't see me, but I'm not as big as I was now. I'm a little scrawny dude. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> Do you, are we going to be able to record here or not? And he said, I told you, I'll tell you later. I said, well, give me a number. And we exchanged numbers. Of course, I don't know what happened to our manager. He, he gave us some crazy contract where we would end up owing him like three of our kids or something crazy. <laughs> and then even Jazzy said, hey, don't mess with that guy. And we stopped messing with him. <laughs> I think he went to jail or something. But anyways, uh, called Jazzy J and he said, yeah, you guys can start recording here. And the, the, we started recording at Strong City Records, Strong City Studios, um, Jazzy J Studios in 1987, 80, yeah, 87. The summer or fall of 87, because I know it had to be hot because we were on the sidewalk beeping people out the way. <laughs> so, that was that was that time where we said, you know, we started saying, let's take this real serious. Let's start recording. And um, that was the birth of it all for us. Gary's for wearing a strong city shirt right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> representing. I'm in here representing. <laughs> so that was the birth of the Rhino Committee, you know, slash one of my groups that I was dealing with at that time. So in that time, I said, you know, um, I wanted to really produce or try to get into the production scene a little bit more because I'm in the studio and now I'm hearing um, Masters of Ceremony. They were there. They were recording. Um, there was a, a few other groups. Busy B, he was recording there. And they were working on the label. And I said, well, dang, their sounds are much better than what I'm producing here or trying to produce. So that made me go out and dig a little harder and find, you know, really starting to listen. I mean, when people say that they're looking and digging, you have to really not just go out and shop for records. I used to go up into a studio just like something similar to this and listen to records all day long for like eight hours and just be like, hey, I like this, I like that. And I went through probably thousands of records a week. I just didn't go to record stores and be like, oh, this looks interesting. I'll buy this or this looking stream and start looking it up on my phone and all that. <laughs> that wasn't around back then. <laughs> you know, when you went out looking, you had to really, you know, our secret was we started getting to know the producers of these, these albums. We started seeing what kind of instruments are being played on these albums. And fortunately the albums weren't the price that they are now. You know, most of the time you can go out there and get a nice selection of vinyl for cheap. Um, Connecticut scene at the time. I know about Steezo. I'm missing tons. Well, I'll be honest with you. I kind of abandoned Connecticut and I started going into New York. And I was, you know, at that time, uh, you could do a round trip 
on the train for $6. (laughs) So I started hanging in New York every other day. Um, The days I I wasn't working or whatever, I'm in New York. Um, There's a song, oh my God, I think the Jungle Brothers put out, if you remember who the Jungle Brothers are, they did a promo for Red Alert. And they said, uh, Sammy B is at Downstairs Records seven days a week. He was, because I was, I was there with him, <laughs> you know? And we were looking, digging in, down there, and I started digging in New York for records and made a lot of contacts in New York through that. And um, I think our sound got a little bit better. My MCs got a little bit more um, recognition. And from doing that, being at Jazzy J Studio, one day we ran into um, one of the pioneers or icons of hip-hop. We ran into Africa Bambada. Of course, we were going to do that eventually, run into him because, you know, Jazzy J. And he, he, um, you know, recognized what we were doing and let us be on uh, my groups. I had two groups at that time. I'm flipping all over the place. Sorry about that. But I had two groups. I was forming another group at that time. And he let them perform. And we we're on the Time Zone album my MCs and I did a little co-producing on a, a on a track um that's on the profile album not on the time zone the Zulu War Chant remix I did um you know some um add you know add this add that type of thing on that so that was like one of the biggest records I could say okay my name's attached to are you on the credits or are they uh uh on one that's good <laughs> You know, but like everything else, um, the ins and outs of of being young and being in the business, you you're not handling your business. So there's a lot. There's some records that I you know might have my name to it, but I didn't get the money for it. You know, and it's what it is. I could look back on it later and be like, ah man, I'm mad. Or I could just say, you know what, that was an experience that I went through. When you're digging, is it, um, or back then, mm-hmm. is it like a lax scene or is it kind of competitive? Um, it was two folds because at that time, the New York scene wasn't developed yet. Like like for, for the golden era of hip hop, that's what I'm saying. The premieres was just starting out. Premier wasn't him right now. I used to hang with the Beat Nuts. They're not who they were right now. They were just starting out. Uh, Q-Tip. Uh, large professor, the guys that are Pete Rock, the guys that are like, oh, everybody's looking at them like, oh, wow. No, they weren't known then. Like, you know, they were known, but they weren't known for being the legends who they are now. But everybody would always trade names of titles of records. Like, hey, you ain't got this record and you ain't got, and I started, you know, learning new uh, artists, learning new labels, learning this. And some of them guys, because we used to meet at this crown place called the Roosevelt Convention. That was the mecca for record digging, for producers to meet. And where was that? <laughs> that was in New York City on, uh, what was it, 44th Street? Or 40, yeah, 44th, 43rd, it was out there, in Roosevelt Hotel, New York City, Manhattan. Um, Dexter used to put that show on. And I mean, that was the sole convention. If you wanted a record, that was it. And actually, from that convention is where I started selling records. And it wasn't that I was selling records as a as a, uh, um, 
a livelihood. I had a job, but I just had so many records that I'm like, okay, let me come down here because these guys, I see what they were making from these producers. And I think one of my first big sale actually was when I linked up with um, Kid Capri, who's a friend of mine now. But like I said, he was on Def Jam Comedy a few years, you know, during that time frame. So he was buying records off me like weekly. And I said, well, hey, I could start doing something with this. And the other part about it is, yeah, um, mom was telling me I had to get rid of the records and she was going to throw them out. <laughs> so I had to do something with them. <laughs> so that was the birth of me saying, hey, the Roosevelt, hey. I met a couple of guys who said, hey, you know, you should start selling. And I, I would go down there with two little cases and set up with a friend of mine. I call him my big brother now. His name is Tony. I used to set up with him. And in that process, I started learning about more records. I started learning about Golf McDermott and everybody else that people were never hear about because nobody was thinking about him. And uh, Dennis Coffee Trio. and started hearing about these because the buzz around the room was these are the records everybody's looking for. And at the same time, I said, wait a minute. I see what these guys are charging in New York City. It's like, they want $40 for that record? $20 for this record? $30 for that record? I just seen that record in replay for a dollar. <laughs> you know, I seen this record in Cutler's or one of these record stores around here. So I used to run up to these stores and I would pick up three and four copies of these records. Like, oh, shoot. And shoot back down the city. Okay, here, <laughs> you know? And I was doing that for a while and I ran across my friend of mine, um, Ernest. Ernest was um, from New York. And we used to come up and go to a lot of uh, flea markets. Every Sunday morning, we would go around Connecticut Flea Market. We would go up to New York. I mean, not New York, excuse me. Go up to Massachusetts and come back with like maybe four or five boxes, U-Haul boxes full of records, <laughs> you know, and only spent like $100. So that, from there, I built my collection. I started buying out radio stations. Another thing I did, so I was getting records six, 7,000 records at a time for cheap because nobody wanted records at the time. And I, I amassed a collection of a lot of records, you know. Do you have a storage space or is this your basement or where nah, you put this stuff? It was in my basement and in my room. You know, I got my sister over here. She knows. <laughs> so it was there and that's why mom was like, you know, hey, hey, get this stuff out of my house. <laughs> I, I didn't want to get a storage unit. But in hindsight, I wish I had because I end up one year going on vacation and uh, came back home and I didn't know that we had a flood in the house. <laughs> where where I live is a flood zone and I didn't know until like maybe three months after you're going down into the basement. You're like, wait a minute, what does that smell? It's mildew. And yeah, I lost like 16,000 records. <laughs> 16,000, oh my God. Yeah, 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 it hurt, it hurt for a while. <laughs> you know, there was some tears. I'm like, oh my God, you know, because you, you go out, see, people don't really understand when you really, the term digging in the crates was a term, but that's what people had to really do. We had to go and find records underneath people's porch and people's basements. It wasn't like, you know, we looked up Craigslist, now they do it, or, you know, <laughs> you know, shop online for records and, you know, no, we had... Our generation discovered a lot of these titles that people say, oh, they're hard to find now. Nobody was looking for them then. We made that happen. Our generation of producers or whatever made that happen. Beat diggers, we made that happen. That these records were 
you know, people want them now. Was that weird for you to see? That like a dollar record of Dennis Coffee, and now it's it's going like crazy, and like you, you you're part of that in a way. Right? Um, <laughs> it's weird, but in a in a way, we kind of we kind of let that happen because I'm in the, I, I'm one of the guys that kind of did that. Take a dollar record and say, "Hey, give me a hundred for this." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not weird. What's weird to me is the generation that thinks that they're the ones that discover these records. Like, you know, I ran to somebody maybe like five years ago. Oh, I got 24K Black. Did you ever have 24K Black? And I'm like, yeah, I've had that many times. <laughs> you know, it's a different era. And people got to understand there's an era always before them. And the stuff we used to do, these guys aren't doing no more. And some of, some guys are still doing it. I'm not I'm not out there digging hard anymore. But Large Professor and all them guys, they're still out there digging hard. And me and large professor, we used to go to warehouses. And even back then, warehouses, man, they were giving rid of sealed records. I mean, open sealed records. Oh, you can have that for $2. So, yeah, we saw a box of, you know, uh, Thin Lizzy or something. We're taking that whole box. You know what I mean? So go to the warehouse, and I used to leave out of there. Okay, broke. I had a, I had a decent job. I had a decent job, so I was making money. and. I might go to a warehouse and spend a thousand dollars. Nowadays, people, you know, it's a different thing. People, they'll know this record's hard to find, but then they'll download it. So the fun's gone. And then the people that don't know what a record is, everybody's looking records up and they'll put 500 on it just because eBay said it's worth 500. But the condition of your record's not worth $500. Mm-hmm. So the, the fun of it, that fun's gone to me, for me. So then when was your arm twisted to start? You had a storefront, right, for a while? Um, I had two. I had one um, in 1994. Um, I was partners with a friend of mine in New Rochelle, and we had a store in New Rochelle off of, um, on Center Street. That was um, <laughs> a quick-lived thing. I think we had that for about a year, and he was getting antsy with it. Because, you know, he didn't understand business. It takes time for people in business to grow, you know. So I had that for a while, and we kind of had a, not a falling out, but um, he let somebody else come in and take over the store. And that, that kind of, like, got me bitter. And then another one um, I had after I kind of, it was in 2004, and um, that was in Stratford, Connecticut on Barnum Avenue. That's when I kind of gave up the, I want to make records dream, you know, <laughs> and said, hey. Well, could we go back to that? So after the profile record, what what happened? Oh, after the profile record. Okay. So then um, I just started hanging out in New York, started um, hanging with um, Bambada and, and the whole Zulu Nation type of thing. Joined, we, you know, everybody in our crew kind of joined Zulu Nation. I had um, two other groups that were forming together, a group called Mini Styles, and BSB was their first name. Then they turned it to Mini Styles. Um, they were also on Time Zone record. Unfortunately, one of the members got shot and, and killed. Um, so I also, well, and excuse me, the first group that I was with kind of disbanded because one of my friends moved to North Carolina and the other friend went to, um, you know, started going to college and doing his thing. So I started messing with my other group, BSB, Mini Styles. And I could tell the professionalism, they were, you know, the professionalism wasn't as on point. 
they were they could have been signed to a real deal. I mean, Atlantic Records was trying to sign them. Uh, Jive Records were trying to sign them. A couple of but people got to understand it's not just I want to get signed. You have to be professional, and of course, they were playing around with certain things. But I linked up with um my friend uh, DJ Fashion. He he still does things. Fire Fashion. He's still doing things. But he had a group called Strictly Roots. And from there, I used to service him material, and we co-produced a few tracks. Um, Strictly Roots, if you ever look up Beg No Friends, that was uh, probably one of the best uh, tracks we did and one that made some noise. That was one featuring Fat Joe and Grand Pooba. But the group was Strictly Roots. And um, from there, they kind of disbanded also. And one of, uh, like I said, I was working with a second group. They were on the verge of getting signed. Um, my friend, he ended up getting killed. They did a an album dedicated to him with another group. Excuse me, I'm, I'm just throwing you groups. Yeah, yeah. They were the Connecticut Cartel. And um, probably that was probably one of the last projects I worked on. At that time, my other friend, he, he graduated from college and he wanted to come out and do another album. His album was called um, Donnie Hoffa's Black Monday. I, I produced three tracks and mixed about three tracks for that album. But it just got to the point where record labels were trickery, trickery, you know, everything was just so messed up. It was like, man, all this work we're doing, it's not, it's no return on it. So I said, well, you know, let me, you know, stop doing it. Let me start doing what I, you know, I got all these records and I, during that time from 92 to the whole 2000, um, no, excuse me, 98, I was always selling records. That was like another venture because the money was good. You know, I can, like I said, I had some of the top producers buying for me, from me. So I can go there and, you know, I became G the beat man. A lot of guys like, Hey, G's the beat man. The beat man's coming. He's got something for you. And I've sold records to, like I said, uh, Large Professor, Q-Tip, uh, Kid Capri, Pete Rock, uh, Evil D and those guys, uh, even Questlove at the time when he used to come to the conventions at the time, and he's blown up now. Salam Remy, Diamond D, and Lord Finesse and all those guys. You know, I was there when they coined the phrase digging in the crate. You know what I mean? I, I'm on um, a background vocal of a uh, um, Showbiz and AG song. So, you know, I was in the mix. Beat Nuts, of course, like I said, they gave me credit on, on the, their second album for some samples I did. And I started working back here in Connecticut with um, a group called, um, well, not a group, Bass Blaster. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's out of Waterbury. And I became friends with um, his DJ, Slick Vic, out of Waterbury. And we worked on a few things together. And we started selling tracks. We sold a few tracks. But after a while, it just, you know, you got to have a love for it. And I kind of was losing the love for it. So I said, yeah, let me um, take this record selling thing a little serious. And I um, opened up a store for a while. And, uh, you know, I guess with me, <laughs> if the love fades a little bit, I, I, I just I just quit it, you know. And um, a lot of people don't understand, though. I have a store and, and run a store. 
and I was trying to get help, but couldn't get help. I had a, I had a decent sized store. I was, I couldn't get, really get any help in there. And it was like a lot of, a lot of, uh, headaches, <laughs> you know, a lot of, you know, got to keep it going because at that time you're still competing with, um, technology. And at that time, technology was just starting to open up to downloading and streaming and all this other stuff. So people were, you know, and eh, vinyl's not relevant no more, not knowing. And I'm lucky for, like I said, well, my history helped me out because most of my buyers were coming from overseas. And when they came from overseas, it was a nice paycheck for me. And that kept me floating around. But, um, you know, certain things happened during that time um, personally in my life. And um, I just lost love for it, for doing that. So I, I took a back seat and I said, let me shut this down. But that lasted for about five years. I did that for about five to six years in Stratford. Mm -hmm. And this still to this day, people, I, I'll see somebody at a convention somewhere and they said, oh, we, we love your store. We miss your store. And I'm like, oh, wow. And I can't remember who they were. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, who, I'm glad you said that, but I don't know who you are. <laughs> maybe they didn't drop enough money. Yeah, maybe that's what it was, right? <laughs> um. You're doing some events now, though, right? Um, I was always doing events, like I said, since yeah. eighty, since we started in in eighty nine. You know, from house parties to <laughs> that's all we knew how to do. A friend of mine's father always told us, you know, make some money off this, you know, and and we turned it into a business. So yeah, um, I'm always doing events. Um, I started. Doing after I shut the store down, I formed a, a group with a couple of DJs in in Connecticut, and we were calling ourselves the GFC Crew, and we were doing our little parties, happy hours out in out in um, the Ramada End in Stratford. We did that for a while, but it the DJ culture. There's a lot of egos, <laughs> you know, so it led to a lot of. Uh, arguments and who did what and who's not doing what and like I said, it's, of like the old school guys or yeah yeah wow. which yeah. I I would I would think not it wouldn't happen but it happened it happened so I said well you know what let's disband this because you know it was arguments over money issues and to me it was like there's not no real money yet and a few guys it's not no real money yet well we are we arguing for this little money it's gonna get bigger and Fights were gonna break out. Nah, let's let's disband that. So from there, in 2013, um, me and Jim Slice, who you met, Jim Slice is from Steezo's group out of New Haven. On our way coming back, because we used to go down to New York to see all the DJs perform, and you know, some of those events, you know, they, the party didn't start till like 2:30 in the morning. <laughs> So coming back one time, like four in the morning, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, hey, you know what? We should bring this stuff to Connecticut because nobody's doing it in Connecticut. And we formed um, an event called Legend Beats and Grooves where it's exactly what it is. We wanted the DJ, legendary DJs to come to this event, show their turntable skills, play their beats and their grooves. So that's what we started doing in 2013. And um, from those events, we've had legendary DJs. Um, the master, well, excuse me, the creator of the Scratch, Grand Wizard Theodore, was was a part of it. Has been a part of it a few times. We've had Tony Tone from the Cold Crush Brothers. He's been um, 
semi-partner in it with the sounds. We've had um, Rob Swift from the Legendary Executioners. Um, oh, man, so many people. DJ Melstar started with us. Melstar came down. Um, down. EPMD's DJ, Diamond the Artist, has been there. Uh, DJ Doodles out of uh, Philadelphia. Oh, uh, my man, Grandmaster Supreme, who's won the DMC and, you know, tons of names that, you know, floating around that's been to our event. And that's been going on for the last, since 2013. There's been a couple of years where we didn't do it. Um, of course, during the COVID time, we didn't do it. But we've been in Connecticut. We took it to Massachusetts. We've taken it to, we've taken it to um, Philadelphia. So it's getting around. It's getting around. But it, we were doing it twice a year, but we cut it back to doing it once a year. And um, next year is going to be the big year. We're going to bring it back next year with a, a nice surprise guest. I'm not going to tell you right now. <laughs> be an exclusive for somewhere else. Yeah, you were saying that this year is the 50th year of hip-hop in Connecticut. What, what no, no, you, not in no? Connecticut. Just in general. It's the 50th. So what are they dating that back to? Uh, it's 1971. You know? Um, oh, right. Um, 70, 70, yeah. The band of uh, Ku Herc. Doing what he did at, at Cedar Hall. I mean, uh, Cedar Projects. Uh over in that area. So that's what they're basing it on. Awesome. But it is. And I mean, I'm I'm trying to um, spearhead Connecticut to let's do something for Connecticut. And like, I want to include yourself. If you can, you know, we, we talked about. We're, we're trying. You know, yeah. let's, let's, <laughs> let's make this official. Also, um, in the last um, five years, I've been doing events at the State House in New Haven. Um, Carlos and them has been um, letting me do bring real hip hop there, like I, I've, I've, want, I want, I've been wanting to do. Um, at first, they were kind of hesitant, saying, "Hey, maybe you know the old school. I don't know, I don't know." But um, I brought them there. I brought. I've had Ed O.G. I've had um, Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs. I'm throwing these names out there, so I want you guys to do your research on these people if you don't know, because they've made classic songs. I've had uh, C.L. Smooth there. I've had uh, Brand Nubians was there. Uh, Master Ace has been there. Uh, Dinkle D from Leaves of the New School. They did my birthday party. Oh, wow. Oh, there's some, my mind's, you know, so much on my mind right now. There's probably some people I'm forgetting that I've had there. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. You and Jim are really big on history. Um, History and making history. You know? That's what we got to do. You got to do. We, we, you know, we can't just live in the past. We got to start. We're doing things now. We're doing things now. We, we've, um, you got to be a pioneer of something, you know, and, and let's make some things happen. So, yeah. I mean, his story is different from my story. We linked up. I mean, he could come in here and tell his story. And it's a good thing. I want to have him in here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Feel, feel better, Jim. <laughs> he's getting, he's a little sick. Feel better. Oh, man. Yeah. But um, there's 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 a lot of history in Connecticut for us hip hop. I mean, like a round table of people one day. We're gonna do a round table where I get all the pioneers in here. You know, um, right now actually we're working on something for um, September 25th for a pioneer of Connecticut DJs, um, Cutmaster Joey D. Cutmaster Joey D is he's battling cancer right now, so. Um, we're working on something that Chasmos, 
in New Haven, the 25th. Um, if you could come out, um, donate something. And we're also doing it um, October 1st at the State House. We're going to be there um, with some performances. Dulio is supposed to perform that night. And um, we're going to have legendary Billy Bush, Terrible T uh, from Stanford, and Tony Tone from the Cold Crush Brothers are going to be on the uh, on the turntables giving you a set. And also um, a couple more surprise guests. But that's going to be at the State House on October 1st. And then there's another one planned. So we're, we're, we're doing a fundraiser for Joey D, Cutmaster Joey D, and his family to you know, help him ease, ease the burden on him for these bills he's, he's accumulating. You know, and I'm praying that he get well, get better. It's a battle he's fighting, you know. You got to give me those flyers. <laughs> well, it's going to be on social media. We're not. That's great. Yeah, yeah. we're doing it on yeah. social media. So if you're my friend on social media, you see it. Yeah, I'll see it. <laughs> um, what would you say to somebody who's young who wants to get into hip-hop? Um, I don't think somebody that's young knows what hip-hop is. It's 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 a time that is kind of elapsed. Um, what what's being done now is different forms of rap music. It's not hip hop. There might be elements of hip hop in a lot of stuff, and I'm not one of the pioneers. I get somebody here to tell you the pioneer stuff. I'm not a pioneer of this. I came in through the golden era, but I've I've studied. Um, like I said, fortunately, I've I've been able to become friends with. Afco Bimbada, Grandmaster Flash, Cool Herc, and those guys who everyone consider the fathers of hip hop. So, talking with them and and and, and uh, learning from them, I'm, I'm, I can speak a little bit on it. They don't have the essence. Wasn't and I just finished having this conversation? The essence of real hip hop was never um, passed down. Most people in the 90s from outside of New York that learned about hip-hop learned it through the TV, i.e. MTV or BET or whatever they could see or American Bandstand, Soul Train, whatever they saw hip-hop at, Grammy shows or whatever. They never went down to the essence, to the parks, to to the small clubs to see it. So... What's going on with the younger generation is they're just mimicking what they see. It's a form of hip hop, but it's not hip hop. And I, I've, I, I, I say true culture now. I use the, the term true culture, and that's what I try to do at my events. I don't care if there's ten people there, or if there's a hundred people there, or if there's a thousand people there. Once you leave my event, you're gonna say, "Oh wow, I experienced something." You know, I just we just did something in Waterbury this uh, last weekend. I had maybe uh, 2,000 people out there. And when grown men, you know, said, hey, man, this is something I never experienced. This is, and that's what it is. It's not going in there flashing your money, flashing the prettiest girl, flashing your, your, your material things. No. Grab a mic, grab your turntables, and do the essence. That's hip-hop. All the rest of the stuff is fraudulent. You know, that's what, to me. In my own opinion, I'm saying it. Yeah, man. Hope I answered your question. No, that that answered <laughs> it. Um, is there anything else that I'm? 
Are we leaving any parts out? <laughs> we probably we probably are, man. It's it's yeah. it, it's it's a good time. I'm glad you invited me, but it's like a hectic time. I got so many things. Um, oh yeah, you left this out. I'm um, planning the record show <laughs> also, <laughs> November twentieth. Anybody uh. anybody that's uh you know has old vinyl they want to get rid of or you know want to come down to the record show, November twentieth, uh, Creative Venue, forty Logan Street, Bridgeport, Connecticut, off of Exit Thirty, um, off Ninety Five. So I'm working on that, you know, just a lot of things. You know, I'm probably gonna leave here and be like, "Dang, I should have told him this." Or, Dang, I should have told him that. You could text me, and I'll put it in the social yeah. media post. Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. All right, so like, you're working on a lot right now. I'm trying to, you know. Hey, hey, listen. Um, unfortunately, I've had a lot of friends that passed. A lot of friends that passed. Um, this before COVID. A lot of friends passed during COVID, but a lot of friends that passed. And. Um, yeah, man, you gotta you gotta try to live your passion, live your passion right now, because you never know. You never know. So, um, when I'm gone, people are gonna say, people are gonna say, hey, this is what he was about. If you're living and nobody know what you're about, you ain't living. All right. We might have to do a part two to this. <laughs> we should. We should. I, I know, we'll have you back. I know yeah. I'm forgetting so much stuff, so much because I didn't even get into the Grandmaster Flash. Um, when we used to record with Grandmaster Flash and all this other, well, stuff. let's hear that. Yeah. Let's let's I, let's end it, with that. It, it, it's, yeah. it, it's it's just so it's so crazy. It's like wow, that's all right. There we go. Here we go. I guess the moral of the story is be persistent. Here was um, I was in a record store in New York City. Like I said, I used to go to all the different record stores, and I'm there, and in comes Flash, and he's asking. Um, the record store owner about a record and the record store owner said, Hey, I don't got that record. I don't, I don't know where I could get that record. And I just happened to look up. I said, wait a minute. Hey, um, you're grandmaster flash, right? He said, yeah, I'm grandmaster flash. I said, Oh, I got that record. He said, you do. He said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm looking for that. He said, well, I need that. But I forgot to tell him I lived in Connecticut. <laughs> I didn't have the record on me. So he thought I lived in the Bronx or something like that. I said, nah, I'll give, you, I, I'll give you the record. I'll I go back and I'll give it to you in a couple of days. He said, oh, all right, all right. So I went to deliver him the record at his studio. So at that time, he's like, hey, what do you do? I said, oh, I got a group. Bam, here's my tape. You know how that, you, back in the days, that's how we had to do it. So I let him hear the tape once again. Um, hey, I like this sound. You guys want to start recording? And we started recording at Grandmaster Flash's studio, which was kind of the craziest uh, hookup that he had. It wasn't like a 24 board and none of that stuff. He had this equalizer set up and everything. It was like one of the best sounds. Let me just say that. So we we did a couple of songs with him. And at the time, actually, he was trying to get us on Uptown. Um, we did one song um, where my keyboardist, he's a singer. He did some singing. And they wanted us to go that route. I guess it was at the same time with Father MC and and uh, you know that stuff. But we were like, nah, we didn't want to be like that. And like I said, in hindsight, we might have blew a couple of our own blessings by being stubborn and we don't want to do this and we don't want to do that. A blessing's a blessing, you know. But um, yeah, recording with Flash was something else. <laughs> it was a uh, you know, it was it was a, a good time. But it was a trying time also. But uh, 
we learn so much and you learn from from being around people that actually started that craft or or had a part in starting that craft and just to learn some of the struggles they went through because they went through some struggles also we you know we're doing this probably what now where i was in the early 90s then at that time when i started working with him and uh hip-hop was getting ready to flourish you know mtv had just boomed up you had the, the fresh prince you had the queen latifah everybody was starting to make movies and that wasn't a rough time you know the rough times was in the the early the mid 70s late 70s trying to get a deal and those guys got jerked around yeah man so yeah man i mean I, I, this know, is great. We got to do it again. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm okay. leaving. Right, out, I'm leaving out so right. much. I'm leaving we'll out so much. We'll have you back. We'll yeah, have you yeah, back. I'm leaving yeah. out so much. We'll and, have a part two. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, I told you I worked with Bam. I, you know, my engineers at the time was Skeff Anselm at at Jazzy J Studio. I'm leaving that part out. He became one of the most well-known engineers out there at the time too, from being with Tribe Called Quest and Fife shouting him out. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. There's so much I'm leaving out, but. Hey, it's only got an hour in a day. That's right. Yeah. That's what we did. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it.